0: The following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. Jesus, thank you uh, that we get to just enjoy being together as a church family. I'm thankful for all the people that you have brought to Cornerstone and thankful for the opportunity tonight to study together and talk together about this subject. It is important that we... Think about this biblically, think about this logically, think about this practically, to understand both ourselves and the people around us so that we can respond in a way that ultimately we hope brings honor and glory to you. And so tonight, Lord, um, as I often say, my words are nothing, um, probably more true tonight than normal. Ultimately, Lord, the only thing that matters here is that we think your thoughts after you that we understand the real heart and root of this matter, and I pray, Lord, that you will do that uh, via our conversation together tonight, in Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, thanks for coming. I uh, I mean, we've only done three of these, but of the three we've done, this has generated the most buzz, so uh, we'll see how that uh, goes, no pressure, right, on that one then uh, for us. I thought I'd start just with a quick uh, practical question for you, just out of curiosity, how how many of you in here personally are connected to someone who is homosexual? Friend, neighbor, relative, okay. Pretty good number, I figured as much. Um, how many of you have in that process been perhaps a little unclear on how to respond to that as well? Raise your hand. Okay. It's that issue there of response is really kind of at the heart of what I'm thinking tonight. I have spent a great deal of time in the past month just trying to think about what we need to do together this evening to maximize uh, the value of this time so that as you walk out of here, you you have gained as much as can be gained in about an hour and a half. Uh, And uh, in saying that, I'm assuming you recognize that there is no possible way that even in an hour and a half, we can really address this subject as fully as it probably should be address, addressed. So all, all I can do is try to put together um, a line of teaching that I hope I hope, will give you a framework for thinking through this topic, one that can be built on later in various ways uh, down the road. So that's kind of my, my general goal tonight is just simply to model a line of thinking that I hope is is biblically accurate and biblically faithful um, through and through. And thinking about how to do this, I really felt strongly that we cannot forget in this conversation that the issue at stake is not actually about homosexuality or same-sex marriage. It's not about that at all. If you've ever really uh, thought about counseling or thought about the problems that people have in any any respect, in any area of life, any sin, whatever sin you name, whatever issue you think of, you always have to remember that that thing is merely the, the fruit that is hanging out of the tree. It's growing out of something, okay? So it, you name the sin, you name the struggle, and whatever you've named is not the issue. It's merely the expression of the issue. And so in, in thinking of it in that way then, I, I kept trying to come back to, okay, what's the root? What, what's really at the heart of this discussion? And, and and even more importantly, what's at the heart of our response to it? That as we think about this and we talk with people, we're not blind to the, the realities that are underlying everything surrounding this. And so what I've done is I have identified... Um, best I could, and I'm not sure that it's it's great, but I have tried to identify what I believe to be some of the the main fallacious presuppositions that are at the root of this discussion. Certain beliefs, okay, if you don't know what a presupposition is, it's a belief you just start with, all right? It's the beliefs that are at the core, the root of this thing, and as we talk through some of those roots, some of those presuppositions, you're going to find that they actually lead to a a great deal of fruit, not just homosexuality, not just the issue of same-sex marriage, but abortion, adultery, all kinds of sin, all kinds of social problems and issues. It, it's going to manifest itself in multiple ways, and clearly I'm going to focus on just one expression of its manifestation, but but I, I'm really wanting to try to go deeper. And even as I'm doing this, my, my goal and doing that isn't just even to expose wrong thinking on perhaps on what you might think of as the other side of this conversation, but it's really even to expose wrong thinking in us, wrong believing in us that, that needs to be confronted, quite frankly. And so we'll stop at points, and, and I'll try to make some application, both personal and kind of pastoral as well along the way, and I hope that will be beneficial to you um, as far as questions go and breaks, I'm gonna play that by ear because, quite frankly, I can't tell if I have too little material or too much. So we're just gonna we're just gonna work through it. And as I'm seeing the clock tick away, and as I'm trying to judge how to to speed up or slow down our time, I may open up more conversation or I may close it off or not allow it at all. Um, and I ask you to be patient with me as I try to balance that along the way. But obviously, I wanna. Do my best to to help you, perhaps in specific situations you have. Not that I'm an expert in this, but whatever extent we can help one another and grow together, that I think is always beneficial. So that's kind of the game plan. Any questions about that? Eric, see, I actually gave you a chance to interact. I thought I would start um, with five issues or five statements. Excuse me, not issues, just statements that so you know where I'm coming from in advance, because I've also recognized that as we've, I've talked to people on Sundays about this, not everybody's in the same place, and so I'm not even assuming that in this room everyone's in agreement on these issues, okay, so I'm not going to take that for granted, so I thought I'd make these five statements up front, these are statements that I personally am making, and then we'll get more into our, our lesson tonight, but here are my five statements. Number one, I believe homosexuality is a sin, A, against God, B, against man, okay, it's a sin both against God and against, others number two I would say that there is no such thing as same-sex marriage it doesn't exist it's a non-entity and we will talk about why that is in a moment number three I will affirm particularly at the end that the gospel is the only answer to this question It's the only answer to this to this issue uh, number four I'm also going to point out repeatedly that most of us are hypocrites in here on this topic number five My purpose tonight is to show you that the issue here is really about worldview, not about homosexuality. The issue here is worldview. This is the root, not homosexuality. And so on that last point, let me begin. And I want to address... So just say tonight, is kind of my introduction, that, that worldview is at play here. And that means that tonight, again, as I said, is not just about the subject of homosexuality. It's really about the subject of how you view the world. And if you're not familiar with what a worldview is, it's just simply a system of belief or a system of thought that acts as a lens through which everything in life is interpreted. That's conversations you have, that's television you watch, that's politics, that's relationships, that's everything. Your worldview provides the lens through which everything is is understood, everything is is taught. And so those people who are in favor of homosexuality have not simply come to that position in a vacuum, nor have people who are against it come to that position in a vacuum. And I say this to you, one, this is one of my first little stop and make a comment sort of things, is that both sides of this discussion need to stop accusing the others of just being ignorant, you know, Ignorant, um, what's the word I'm looking for here, where you just have an opinion without having a reason behind it. it, it, you, it this needs to end. We're not just being homophobic if we don't like same-sex, same-sex marriage or homosexuality, nor are we just accusing them of being uh, deviants. There are reasons why people have taken the positions they've taken on these various issues and topics. And that's what we really need to get down to, get to the heart of here this evening. Um, I believe that most people are ignorant of their presuppositions. I think if you get into a conversation with someone, particularly someone who hasn't given a lot of thought to this issue, you're, you're going to find that they really can't articulate why they believe the things they believe, and that's both on the side of those who are against it as well as the side of those who are for it. And not only are they often ignorant of their own worldviews, I think they often apply them inconsistently. So You claim to view the world through a certain lens, and you you do when you look at topics A, B, and C, but when you get to E, F, and G, you just switch. You don't look through that lens anymore. We're very inconsistent in our worldviews, and that's on both sides. Um I've found oftentimes that people who claim to hold a particular worldview are functionally holding another. What you claim and what you practice are different in that time, and as such, we need to simply be aware of that, okay? Any questions on the concept of just worldviews in general and how they play into this particular subject? I know we're very, very early, but I want to make sure you understand my my premise that worldviews are at play. You with me? All right, let's talk about some presuppositions then that are part of people's worldviews that directly affect the subject. Premise number one is this that I want to address, is that there is no God. And, And I am starting with this one because I feel like it's the easiest of them all to address. It's the quickest of them to address. But I want you to think about it perhaps in a little bit different way and specifically related to this subject. Because if you truly believe that there is no God, then I want you to understand anything goes. Anything goes. Because in that view, there is no basis of morality. And can someone define morality for us this evening? Who wants to take a stab at defining the word morality? Okay. It's a a system of understanding right and wrong. Understanding and defining right and wrong. Identifying right and wrong. Okay? It's a code. And, And and. Whenever you start talking about the issues of right and wrong, you are implicitly stating or making a judgment call, are you not? That some things are right and other things are wrong. These are absolute statements. Something can't be both right and wrong at the same time. It's either right or it's wrong. This This is just part of the whole concept of what morality is. And for people who do not believe that there is a God, then in the end, they really have no basis of morality outside of two things. Either one, outside of themselves and their own personal choices, whatever they choose, or two, outside of a group consensus about what constitutes right and wrong. Has anyone in here ever read uh, the Humanist Manifesto? Three of us? <laughs> Four of us. Um, I, I don't know if it's been updated. I haven't looked back at it in years, but it was back in the what 70s, 80s, the, the humanist manifesto was written, and it was a declaration of humanism at its most foundational and core level. And so in humanism, at least the humanism that was behind this particular document, the base assumption is that there is no God. And what I appreciated so much about that document was that at least they were honest about their understanding of morality. They said, just basically point blank in the document, there is no such thing as right and wrong. Because they recognized that with no absolute moral law giver, there can be no absolute moral law. And to make that point very clear, then I can just make sure you understand what they're saying. They're saying that if you went out of here today, and you found a three-year-old child, and you raped it multiple times and then murdered it, That would not be inherently wrong, because there is no objective, inherent morality in the universe. Now, it might be wrong because you yourself believe it to be wrong, or it might be wrong because we as a society have agreed that such an act is wrong. But that's subjective morality. Do you understand the difference? It's not inherently evil, because no such thing exists. It's merely subjectively evil because we've agreed that such a thing is evil. And so in, in this worldview, if it was applied consistently, there would be only subjective morality with no final authority ever to turn to in life. Now, we should all thank God at this point that people are inconsistent on that point, on that, on that uh, belief. Can you imagine our world if people actually lived out what they claim to believe in the topic of, of God's existence. If you're gonna truly be an atheist, if you're gonna truly hold to this concept that there is no objective divine lawgiver who is given an objective divine law, then you could really live in a world of anarchy. You know what we call that? We call it common grace. That that kind of thing doesn't happen. That God in his mercy protects us as a people and as a society, as a nation, as as his Humanity is his creation. And so you need to just be aware, though, that this would be the end result. Anything would go. Many people, even, I find, who profess belief in some form of a higher being are functionally atheists when it comes to their definition and understanding of morality. Again, morality is based in some kind of object, or should be based in some kind of objective moral code or, or code of you know, lawgiver, but it is not. And I would counter that argument by simply saying that there is a God and he is the source of objective morality. And I would note that when I say that he is the source of objective morality, please underline the word he in your mind. Not even his commands. Not even his word. He, God, is the source of objective morality. He is the baseline, the standard, the foundation on which everything we understand about morality is built. And yes, his commands and his word then reflect his character, and they reflect his understanding of what's right and wrong, and should inform our understanding of right and wrong as well. But ultimately, he is the beginning, and everything else flows out of that. Do you do you understand that point? Okay, this is the most base uh, beginning concept. If 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 someone doesn't start with a concept of God as moral law giver, then there's no telling where the conversation goes. And if you're involved in a conversation with someone like that, you've got a tough road ahead. You're not even starting at the on the same track. You're running two different races completely, and you're gonna you're gonna have some issues there. Okay? That point's done. Any questions about that? Presupposition one. Let's move on. They each build on each other. Presupposition two then goes like this, that God and his word, both God and his word, are not clear and or authoritative. If someone is willing to accept that there is a God, oftentimes the next step of, of difficulty in the discussion is that they do not believe that either God or his word are clear and or authoritative. Now, this is a statement that is true in general, I would say. That many people, even who profess belief in in some kind of higher power, do not believe that uh, there's any clarity as to what's expected of them or how they should live, function, act, think, etc. Or even if they perhaps did think there was some clarity on that topic, they functionally live as if there is no authority in those expectations. And so this is just a general comment that would apply to so many different subjects, but specifically on the issue of homosexuality, we see this presupposition played out in so many different ways. I'll start with the issue of authority. Because the Bible is not viewed as God's written revelation of himself and his truth to man. And as such, then, people see no authority in what the scriptures have to say. They don't accept the scriptures, these 66 books that we place our, our faith and we find our faith in, our find truth in, they do not find those things authoritative, and so, for example, when they read passages such as this, and I'm going to read five different passages to you, as you'll see why I've chosen them. They're, they're a sampling of the many passages of Scripture that speak to this subject, but they'll see Leviticus 18.22. It says, you shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It's an abomination, and they're like, not authoritative. Or they'll see Leviticus 20.13, if a man lies with a male as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination, they shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. I mean, that sounds like really medieval. That's not authority. No one does this, right? We would never think this way. That would be a statement that would be made. Or something like in Romans 1, 26 and 27, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions for their women, exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, <coughs> And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving themselves the due penalty for their error. And I will just say to you, even from this one passage, if people ever try to say that that all the commands about homosexuality are in the Old Testament, stop okay? them. That's a lie. It's sprinkled throughout the scriptures. Here, you see it again in First Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. This thing is not looking. There it is. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Very clear. Next one, First Timothy. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners. For the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. Over and over and over again, and again, I have given you just a a brief, quick little sampling of what the scriptures have to say on this subject. People hear these things and they automatically write them off as being just non-authoritative. That's the default position, that it has no authority over them or in their lives. And so because of that, they can reject them just outright. You don't even need to discuss it. It's not even a, if it's a presupposition, it doesn't need to be debated. Does that make sense? It's just where you start. It's the starting block. And so it's no authority. It's just thrown out. The other way this is often thrown out is by appealing to its lack of clarity. And the argument goes that the scriptures aren't clear on the subject of homosexuality. And one of the arguments, and I, I chose this one specifically because it aggravates me to death, that is often associated with this particular point about the Scriptures not being clear on this issue. We'll, we'll go back to the Leviticus passage here. So, so people who are trying to argue against a Christian view of homosexuality will point to this and say, okay, see, here, here Moses writes in Leviticus that men can't sleep with men. Well then, the next chapter over, it says this: You shall keep my statutes. You shall not let your cattle breed with a different kind. You shall not sow your field with two kinds of seed, nor shall you wear a garment of cloth made two kinds with two kinds of material. How many of you are wearing cotton blends right now? Well, if you're wearing a cotton blend, then why are you okay with that, but not okay with with homosexuality? Why are you picking and choosing? And I think Christians hear that argument and they're like, oh. I don't know, <laughs> and so then the argument turns. We'll see the scriptures aren't clear. You're not even clear on what you believe, and it it becomes this like debacle of 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 accusation and confusion. And I'm sitting there listening to this, going, H- "Do we, do we not remember what we just saw two weeks ago? For example, about the Lord's Day and the Sabbath issue there in, in Acts 15? You, you remember the context? I hope so, because we talked about it enough. Um, that that here. Paul and Barnabas are in Antioch, and this, this controversy arises because people are coming saying, to be saved, you have to believe in Christ, and you have to be circumcised. And so they have this big argument, and finally they can't come to a resolution there within Antioch, and so they send a delegation over to, to Jerusalem to, to try to understand this thing better. And so they go to the apostles, and the apostles talk about it, and there are people in Jerusalem in the midst of this conversation who are saying, yes, in order to be saved, you have to accept Christ and keep the law. And so as they talk about this thing, they come to a conclusion. It's the one I showed you there in Acts 15, these four things where they wrote a letter, sent it by Judas and Silas, who themselves would tell the same things by word of mouth. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you Gentiles no greater burden than these four requirements. Or Yeah requirements here that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols you abstain from blood you abstain from things that have been strangled and you abstain from sexual immorality so here the apostles are make sure you're understanding my point here here the apostles are and they're looking at the law and they're looking at the gentiles who are there trying to to follow jesus and please god and live for him and you've got these folks who are saying in order to do that, they need to keep the law of Moses. And yet here, here, they're saying to him, no, no, no. There, there are things you need to do, and there are other things you can skip. But one of the things that you can't skip are the commands regarding sexual immorality. Now, pause. Because here is where I believe... We are hypocrites to the core on this topic, all of us. Because as as they write these words here, sexual immorality, let me just think about that term for a moment. It's, It's things that would violate the code of right and wrong that are sexual in nature. So anything that would fall under that general heading, is, is still being prohibited. So that includes adultery, right? Um, let me ask you a question. You're watching TV, network television, and uh, two gay men who are being portrayed by actors begin to uh, clearly go into like a romantic scene and they begin to uh, kiss and then unclothe each other and then fall down on the bed and writhe on top of each other. What what would what would you do? If this is what you're watching on television, what would you do? Would you turn it off, change the channel, look away? What would you do if your kids were in the room? I mean, you would parents. Would you react even maybe more strongly and more quickly in that setting? So when you see a couple, a man and a woman who are not married or who are married to other people doing that same thing, do you react the same way? Why? (laughs) It's sexual immorality. You're unwilling to be entertained by the one form of sexual immorality, but you're perfectly willing to be entertained by the other. Neither makes God happy. Neither is right and yet both are easily ex- or excuse me one is easily accepted by many people the other rejected no wonder we are accused of being hypocrites because we are it's not just homosexuality that god hates it's all forms of adultery fornication a word that has fallen out of of use in our culture today or has been hijacked and mocked the concept of sex When you're not married, this same idea is is applauded, accepted, promoted, and Christians often are right there in the mix of it, totally fine with it. I mean, if you've got gay friends, neighbors, co-workers, relatives, etc., right? You, You struggle having them in your house, around your family, but yet you have no problem with the single nephew or niece who's living with their boyfriend? I mean, why do we react to the one and not to the other? you like, that's disgusting. I get that. I, I I get the ick factor in my heart, too. But I'm saying that from the biblical perspective, they're both expressions of sexual immorality and are both equally heinous. Let's think about the issue of, like, sensuality. You see the scriptures use this term. Just the concept of of, of selling sex and just the everyday nature of life, okay? kind of living in the sensual mindset and mode. Christians have accepted this with hardly any thought. I, I Ladies, I'm not picking on you. I'm just going to say it. Think about the clothing that is promoted to you, that's modeled to you as being the epitome of fashion. It's designed to draw men's eyes away from your face and to other parts of your body. It's designed to do that. And I, I, I don't want us as Christians, as believers, just going along with that and trying to live in such a way that we promote ourselves, particularly our, our women who are just so precious to us husbands, they should be so precious to us that we would ever let them fall into the trap of presenting themselves as sex objects for everybody else clothes so tight you, you can tell everything they've got on underneath what i mean, just you could pick any specific thing and just say why why what are what are you trying to sell here it's this whole concept of this sex saturated society in which we live it has permeated everything and christians go along without even thinking of it let's not even start on porn let's not even start on on homosexuality which we're on tonight i guess let's not talk about polygamy or incest or bestiality, you can look at all of these things and be like, Well, okay, now you're getting like extreme. I'm telling you, it's not going to be extreme for much longer. It's not going to be because these same foundation stones that we're talking about here. I get a phone call in the middle because I didn't silence my own phone. That's bad. He's a bear stand, it's all right. Um I'm just saying. I'm just trying to help you think about these concepts. We we are all up in arms about one component of something and embrace so many of the other components without even thinking about it. I'm just going to challenge you. This is the the pastoral component right here. I'm going to challenge you to give some serious thought to your entertainment, give some serious thought to your choices in life about how you present yourself. I'm giving you some some exhortation to just really consider your heart in these things. Why do we do the things that we do and react the way that we react to these specific points? You know, counter to this, I would say or argue that God's word is very clear on these subjects, very clear. He has forbidden sexual sin, and I'll talk more about kind of the, the nature and the makeup of that here in a moment. It's wrong. It's outside of the bound of bounds of what he has defined as being moral. Right or wrong on these particular subjects. And it's because he's been clear we have no excuse for reacting or, or, or responding in any other way. Not only is he clear but he is clearly authoritative too. He's God. All of these things are reflection of his character and nature and for us to just pass by on some and and, and accept other, eh, I don't, I don't, something's wrong here. There's no contradiction in him. There's no double speak. And if God is in what he says he is, then he has been crystal clear on these topics. Any questions on that? Yeah. We're going to take our first five-minute break. So if you want to get up and go to the bathroom, get some water, go for it. We'll be back at five, oh, six-minute break, 5.55, okay? The next one's a little bit bigger. These aren't complicated issues or subjects so far, are they? I don't think so. And yet, the ramifications of each one, if you follow it through in your in your mind and your in your thinking, they're far-reaching. I'm, I mean, more far-reaching than maybe even I'm giving them justice in tonight. Uh, but I, I wanted to uh, kind of begin this next part here with a, just a American history question. So to speak, what's that? just randomly, who was the thirteenth president? There you go, good job, John Lincoln, right, <laughs> Did you say John Lincoln? Oh okay. <laughs> I was like if you got his name wrong, I'm really I know you have issues with names, but Brock? George Washington no, I don't know. all right, no more so. <clears throat> Let's talk, uh, I think uh, Lincoln was the 16th president. 13th president is, you're saying it so like matter-of-factly that I'll believe you just because I don't know. Hold on, hold on. Washington Adams, Jefferson, yeah. Madison, Monroe Adams, Jackson, and Harrison, Tyler. Fillmore, yes. If you're ever on Who's who wants to be a millionaire and it's a phone-a-friend question on presidents, Beth is your friend. Got it? Beth is your friend. Alright, here is the real question, and I don't know if Fillmore would apply to this at all. <laughs> what do you know about the sexual revolution? Not sure how Fillmore was with sexual revolutions or anything, but uh what do you know? Austin Powers, okay? We see where Seth gets his American history. <laughs> What's that? The French one? the sexual revolution? (laughs) All I'm going to say is you didn't want to see their flag. I'm just saying, all right? Remember that scene from Lay Miz? Totally different. (laughs) Totally different. (laughs) Good. It didn't have Russell Crowe in it. That was the first good thing about it, okay? First good thing. There were many others after that. What else do you know about it? Coinciding. I'm not quite sure about the order there. 60s. Rock and roll. Sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Sex, rugs, and rock and roll would also be a different kind of movement. Higging to rugs back then. What else? What what was it about? What was it about? Sex. Thank you. Promiscuity. Free love. Freedom. Yeah. Yeah. Sixties into seventies. Okay. I was not aware of that part of the sexual revolution, but I was like the immigrant component. <laughs> It's the same, but okay. You know, it's funny to me how um, this is a topic that is so critical to our topic tonight that we know so little about and really understand the connections between the two things. Like, we just haven't really thought about it for the most part. But my next uh, presupposition I wanted to give you is, is tied to this, and here it is: is that both sex and marriage are distinct topics distinct topics and are nothing more than acts/choices that are without divine foundation or context okay i'm going to say that one more time that's a very big presupposition but it's all kind of it needs to be put together that both sex and marriage are distinct topics separate topics and are nothing more than acts or choices that are without divine foundation or context, okay. And I'm going to try to break this up a little bit, and let's consider it in some parts here. Let's start with the concept that sex and marriage are distinct; they are separate ideas. And and I was as I was thinking about this, and I was just, you know, I've, I've admitted to you in the past, I'm a I'm a spiritual conspiracy theorist, right? Like I always am trying to think, like, what's Satan's angle here? Like, how if I was him, how would I work this? I I, I can't help but wonder. If this idea of separating sex and marriage into com- separate compartments, separate separate issues altogether, if this isn't one of, like, Satan's primary ploys throughout human history, not just today, but, like, as far back as we can go, that he has tried to divide these issues as far apart as, as he can. I don't know that. That's my spiritual conspiracy side, so I'm giving you that as a freebie there. But... Uh, I think it has to be one of his, his regular goals because it seems to crop up in so many time periods and so many issues and cause so many problems. And yet, for the most part, I feel like we're kind of unaware of this device of his, and we shouldn't be. Now, I would argue that the battle we're seeing today about the issue of homosexuality and in fact, I would go ahead and argue out into the future that whatever battle comes next, which I suspect will be polygamy, but I think it will go beyond that personally, could be wrong. But I think all of those battles were actually began in America years ago in the sexual revolution of the 60s and 70s. As the sexual revolutionaries were fighting to liberate mankind from the sexual taboos taboos of the past, okay? So what you have is a generation that was coming up, having been raised with a certain, um, certain, I'll use your word, vinyl kind of covering of morality that had been imposed on them from above, and they were rebelling. They are reacting. They are rejecting that moral code. And their uh, mantra was free love, right? Sex can be had with whenever you want, however you want it, with, with whoever you want. You are completely freed from the mores of the past and everything that, that came with it. This was the goal, this was the, the desire, and it was achieved in spades. You think about the way people view the topic of sex today. And almost every only I mean, just the average person on the street, and I will I could I'd bet you a million bucks, that almost every point of their beliefs about sex will find its its root back in the sexual revolution and the themes that were being pushed during that time, okay, the, the freedom to be separated away from marriage, have the idea of sex separated away from marriage, and this is clearly contra scripture which always ties sex and marriage always. And we'll, and we'll talk about this more in a moment, but but in the scriptures, sex and marriage are, are two sides of the same coin that cannot be divided. Do you, do you understand this? Do you believe this? And, and even as I'm saying, do you believe this? Do you, do you really believe it? Like, I know you might say you believe it, but functionally, do you believe this, that they cannot be divided? Th- this is why Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 can basically say, hey, look, if you're married, you should be having sex. Not you you can now. It's not just that it's allowed. It's like it's required. You, you, you can't have marriage and not have sex. They, they have to go together. So that's part of what makes marriage marriage. It's one of the benefits and responsibilities of marriage. And then conversely, if you're not married, you, you can't be having sex. Okay? Because you can't have sex without marriage in God's, in God's view. Sex is, is always tied to marriage. It's always combined in Scripture, but it has been clearly divorced in culture and in society. And once sex was divorced from a biblical understanding of marriage, then not to be overly crass about it, I say this to all my, my um, premarital counseling couples, so if you've done that with me, you, you've, you've heard this. Once it was divorced from marriage, Sex became about nothing but orgasm. Let that, let that thought sink in, because it will define and help you understand the majority of sexual sin in America today. It will help you even understand some of your own heart and our struggles with, with sexual sins. That because it has been divorced in our hearts and minds from marriage and all that marriage was intended to be, which obviously is the other side of this coin I haven't gotten to yet, because it's been divorced from that, it's it's really been treated as if it's nothing more than just about orgasm. I mean, if that can be achieved, then you've, you've gotten everything there is to get about it. It's just a physical experience. And, and I cringe when I talk or hear Christians talk about the issue of sex because if they... You know, you've grown up in churches similar to me, probably many of you. Christians have been ashamed to talk about sex for so long. We were quiet about it for so long that we just gave the topic to the other side to do with whatever they wanted. Yeah, amen. It's true though. We we've 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 walked away from it. And if anyone should not walk away from the topic of sex, it should be the church. Because sex as a as an act, sex as an experience was created by God. It's his. Belongs to him, and therefore all of our thinking about it needs to come back to him. But but we've we've often, most of us, many of us have grown up in a world completely different than that. Biblically, sex is one of the most beautiful and precious expressions of love and unity possible between a husband and a wife. Do you really believe that? You know the, the there's one phrase that I really I, I I feel like it's it's actually a great phrase and it has been taken by the other side and used the wrong way, it's the concept of making love. Have you ever thought about what that means, making love? That actually isn't a bad phrase at all for describing biblical sex. It's the expression of love, relationship, unity, bonding. It's emotional, it's, it's spiritual, it's, it's physical, it's all these things wrapped into one event, one, one action and it's designed by god for our benefit and happiness but we we stopped thinking of it this way and if you take all of that thinking away then you're you're left to understand it uh, i think is you're left excuse me with the understanding of one of the key foundations of the modern homosexual movement because quite frankly if it's okay to have an orgasm with whoever you want whenever you want however you want as long as that person's a, someone of the opposite gender then why wouldn't it be okay to to achieve an orgasm with someone of the same gender. If if orgasm is the only end, then does the means really matter? Do, do you understand the question of why I'm, I'm, I'm pulling this up to the front for us to consider? If sex and marriage are divided, we are left with with a completely skewed understanding of this, of this thing. Um and that's really what sex has been has been reduced to at this point. And so I would argue, very simply, that we as the church, and we as, as believers, we as husbands and wives, we, we, we desperately need to recover a biblical understanding of sex. Desperately. It doesn't just apply to homosexuality, by the way. All those other topics that were covered under sexual immorality, adultery, fornication, sensuality, all that stuff. Okay, All of that is, is treated by this. If you tie sex and marriage back together in your hearts and minds, sex is beautiful. You need to see it that way. It's created by God. And if anyone should believe that, we as Christians should. And sex is sacred. It is sacred. Ordained by God for a husband and wife to enjoy together. And no one else, no one else, no one who's not your husband or wife, no, no other means of enjoyment in there. It's designed for that. It's a sacred thing that has been made by God, and we need to remember that. Now, let's talk about marriage for a moment. Because how, how would you define marriage? Someone be brave and give me a, a definition of marriage so I can make fun of you. I always feel bad when I ask those kinds of questions because in the end I feel like that's where it goes. Whatever you say, i be like, not quite. So let's talk about the real thing. You just try to do that nicely as, as you can don't give me a definition of marriage for me to make fun of intimate friendship okay what else a union okay what else a political and spiritual union of a man and woman as a picture of christ in the church okay what else covenant ball and chain so many things I could say right now, I'll pass on all of them just because I love you. I the concepts that are being stated here are, are good and right, and yet even in the answers, though some of you may have meant more than what you said, so I'm not I'm not picking on you in all seriousness here. A huge component of marriage has been totally overlooked in these answers. Someone said covenant. And that's important. We're going to come back to that. Matt, you said union, I think, or something. You said union. What is it a union of? Ah. So Al has added an important component often forgotten in our definition of marriage. Normally, when you talk to most people about marriage, most Christians, they want to define marriage as one man and one woman for life. Right, That's the kind of the normal response to this particular topic of homosexuality, that marriage isn't about two men or two women. It's about one man and one woman for life. And that's true. It is about one man and one woman for life. But again, if you have gone through my premarital counseling classes, one of the things we talk about in there is that it is a covenant, not just between the man and the woman, between the man, the woman, and God. Marriage is always three-way always it's a triangle that looks like this okay pointing up to heaven to to god as the the binding agent of this covenant this is why if you get right down to it in the end that jesus is going to say that god hates divorce because it's breaking a covenant that that affects him too In the beginning, he made it so that man would cleave to his wife and the two would become one flesh. He never intended that to be broken, ever. It happens because we live in a fallen world, but you're breaking a covenant, not just between the man and the woman, but, but the covenants and promises you made to God as well. There's all kinds of things being broken here. This understanding of marriage as divine has to come back into our thinking. On all of these issues, but particularly in the issue of same-sex marriage. Matt made an interesting comment. It is a political and spiritual uh, how'd you say it again? As political and spiritual union as a picture of Christ and the church. I agree with every component of that, but one part: the political part. Because you are not married your spouse if you're married simply because you have a marriage license the state requires us to register our marriages with them so i get that's why you you threw in the word political and obviously we want to obey the government as much as we can and so i'm not advocating that we not get marriage licenses but if i take my marriage license today or if i go find it in DuPage county illinois and i burn it and it's gone and there's no record of it anymore Am I any less married to Jamie? If, if we had a couple here who, who wanted to be married, but, you know, maybe because of the circumstances of our government at that time, I mean, I, can, I could play out some terrible scenario where we would do this, but I won't, Just it doesn't matter, but we, we could marry them without the, the state ever knowing about it. See, marriage is a spiritual thing. We recognize it politically because our our government asks us to and we submit to them. But what the government says when I stand up and I perform a wedding and I'm saying by the power entrusted to me by the Commonwealth of Virginia, that really means nothing. That's kind of just traditional verbiage and maybe I should just remove it. It's not the Commonwealth of Virginia that makes your marriage authentic. Marriage is made authentic by God as that three-way covenant is made. Do you understand this? And so if our government, we we quit for some reason ever going to them, it doesn't change our understanding of marriage at all. Marriage is a spiritual thing. And as Matt pointed out, there is a component of it, a major component of it that is designed to teach us even about the gospel in marriage, about how Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. This this is why I said up front that there is no such thing as same-sex marriage. This is a, a false conversation we're having in our society right now because you can have two men two women stand up in front of a judge or in front of a priest or a pastor or whoever they want and he go through the ceremony and say all the same words that i might say they are no more married than these chairs are because that's not how marriage works god has defined marriage as one man one woman and himself in covenant relationship for life and anything outside of that is no marriage at all, regardless of what our government says. Now, that said, I, I, as I was making this point point, thinking about it, <laughs> I can understand that conceptually and believe it wholeheartedly, and yet it doesn't change the nature of the discussion I have with my friends and neighbors, right? If they're gay and they're like, well, we're for same-sex marriage, and I can't be like, well, it's no marriage at all. Because they don't, they don't come at it from the same presupposition. You see why this matters? They're, they're not even on the same, the same track with you in your thinking, and your discussion. So they're still defining marriage in this purely political way, this or a cultural way, but not in this religious way, or if they're trying to define it in a religious way, it's because they think God's word is not clear and or authoritative. All right, so you're going back and forth in all these comments. But we have to understand in these conversations that we have, we sometimes may use their language. I'm not using their meaning. Does that make sense? I recognize that there's no such thing as same-sex marriage because marriage is defined by God in a completely different way. Now, Um, how would you apply that in a conversation with someone? In theory. Both of these concepts about sex and marriage being separate, about sex merely being about an act and choice that is totally up to you, no divine foundation, no divine context, okay, all the stuff I said about that, or vice versa, marriage, just simply being an act or choice that's totally up to you that has no divine foundation, no divine context. What kinds of things would you think you might need to point out to somebody in that process? I don't have a right answer for this one, so I won't make fun of you, whatever you say. Yeah. You you end up appealing to authority. Recognize that point because it's important that ultimately these conversations are authority conversations. And because we have different authorities, that's why we've ended up at different points. And so the conversation isn't to convince them at that moment necessarily that these points are right or their points are wrong, et cetera. The conversation you have is an authority conversation. It's a gospel conversation, which I'll come back to in a minute anyway. But do you see the difference in how just even that plays itself out? It's not a political conversation. not a cultural conversation. It's an authority conversation rooted in the truth of what God has done for us in Jesus. All right, just a quick one. I don't have time to keep going on that part. Let's keep moving. Presupposition number four. This is a fun one. Presupposition number four is this: that homosexuality is the natural expression of one's true self. Okay, and again, follow the logic because there's either there is or isn't a God. It doesn't matter. He's not clear or authoritative and because ultimately sex and marriage are viewed as separate, distinct things that have no, their acts or choices that I make that have no divine foundation or context, because of all that stuff in the background now, I view homosexuality as the natural expression of one's true self. And I will say on this point, just because this annoys me to death, I will say at this point that this, I think, is the basis for arguing it as a civil rights issue And I would love, we were talking about this Thursday night, Greg and Dave and Nathan and I, we went and had a a dinner at Beach Ballet together and we got talking about the subject. We were discussing who was the incredibly brilliant person who decided to make the same-sex marriage homosexuality issue a civil rights issue. I mean, really, they were brilliant. Brilliant. Because once they got a hold of that idea and grabbed onto it, it completely changed the nature of the conversation. Because if you really begin to believe that that homosexuality is the natural expression of one's true self, well then, yeah, it, it very much is a civil rights issue. Just like, you know, what race or gender or, or whatever I am is also a civil rights issue. It's just who I am. Whoever did that was brilliant. And I would just simply say that as Christians, just, just at the outset, as you hear people argue that point in that way, we should be outraged that the civil rights movement and the good components that came out of that has been hijacked by this discussion. I'm not saying that everything that happened in the civil rights movement was perfect. I'm just simply saying that there were good things that came out of it that are really quite, I think, being threatened even by this conversation, but then it's taking me down a different path. So I, I, I this, this is a huge, huge point that we need to understand that people believe as a presupposition of the conversation that homosexuality is a natural expression of one's true self. Now, you want to hear the funny part about this? That is both true and false. Both. And I think sometimes Christians are like, no, it's not true. And I'm like, I don't know about that. I think it actually is somewhat true in a particular sense, and I think it's also false, and I know it's false in a particular sense. In what sense is it true? Well, I think it's true in that it is an expression of our sin nature, just like every other sin is an expression of our sin nature. When when people say, when I hear people talk about how they were just born gay, I don't know that I fully disagree with them. Because if you have been around in life at all and have interacted with people at all, and particularly if you have children, okay, you recognize that People seem to come pre-wired to certain sins, okay? You you don't teach your children disobedience. They are pre-wired to disobey. Rebellion is bound up in their heart, is it not, okay? Yet, even in saying that, if you have more than one child, then you have probably recognized that each of your children express their sinfulness in unique and different ways, pre-wired, and so the problem here is for us, theologically, biblically, that we don't quite understand how the sin nature works in terms of how it's passed on and how it expresses itself because the scriptures don't talk about it. It talks about that we all sinned in our father, Adam. That we're all born sinners. We're sinners by birth, by choice, and by divine declaration. Okay, we're, We are sinners through and through. But that I might struggle with one sin more than you is something not really addressed all the time very clearly in the text. Observed, not explained. And so could it be that a particular individual is born with a greater inclination to the sexual sin of homosexuality? Yes. Totally believe that. Just like I totally believe that another person could be born with a greater propensity to adultery or greater propensity to to bestiality, to make it like the extreme version. I totally believe that that could be true. It doesn't change the nature of the discussion, though. And in that sense, the, com- the comment is false. Because ultimately, we are not just our sin natures, are we? What are we ultimately, rhetorical question? We are image bearers. We are image bearers, first and foremost, who are fallen marred, and are living in rebellion against God. And our sin natures come and maybe give the the impetus for the specific ways in which we express that rebellion, but they are not, in the end, the essence of who we are. We are, in the end, image bearers, designed to look like God and reflect His glory on earth. And then to the extent that we fail at that or fall short in our various ways, that, that doesn't change it. You know, I go back to Ephesians 5 and how God made marriage between man and woman to reflect the relationship between Christ and the church. This is a, a creation concept built into us in marriage as an expression of our image-bearingness, okay? Because in husbands loving their wives, they get to reflect Christ. And, and the mutual submission between husband and wife and leadership and, and how all these components work, we get to see aspects of how the Trinity works. I mean, there are so many concepts of image-bearing built into who we are and even what marriage is and how all these things work, that those are who we really are. And so the standard that we are aiming for, the standard we're holding ourselves to and, and thinking through in all of these conversations is not the standard of our sin natures it is the standard of our status as image bearers and that changes the discussion quite a bit and this to me is why the civil rights argument is so offensive because it tries to it tries to take something that is an expression of our sin nature and tries to raise it to the level of being an expression of our maker see if if i'm born black or if i'm born white if i'm born a man or if i'm born a woman God has made all of these things as part of the varied expression of who he is. These are expressions of our maker. But to turn a a, a decision regarding sex to that level, it's, it's wrong. It's offensive. Would you do the same with rape? It too is a sexual choice by one party. Well, it's my choice. It's how I was made. That may be true. There may be a component in you that has a a greater propensity to rape. I I, I don't know. It doesn't change the wrongness of it. It doesn't change the fact that you can't do it, that it's a sin and a crime and all the other things. Would you do the same with pedophilia? Would you do the same with polygamy? That's where the conversation's headed politically right now, if it's okay for... Two men or two women to get married, why not one man and two women or two men and one woman? We've we removed the base, so where does it stop? What about incest? If a if a, a dad and his daughter want to get married and they're both consenting, why not? A brother, a sister, an aunt and nephew, why not? I mean, again, I don't want to sound like you know the person who's up here just throwing out crazy statements, I'm simply pointing out to you that based on the presuppositions given in this argument or assumed in this argument, there's nowhere for this thing to end. But in a biblical response, when we recognize that these issues are not reflective of our maker, but are reflective of our sin nature, then we can respond more appropriately. Do you understand the difference? Okay. Any questions on that point? I got thirty 20, 20 minutes left is what I got, So, and two more presuppositions. Well, one more presupposition and one more thing to go. I'm going to move on. Presupposition number five, <coughs> and this I am speaking to us, that the answer or the solution to these things lies in politics or culture. Th- this, I think, is the uh, presupposition of many conservatives in this conversation, many Christians in this conversation who sincerely desire to see a political solution to come about where the Supreme Court will do this or that, or a state constitution or federal constitution will do this or that, or whatever, okay? Let's just pretend for a moment that that happened tomorrow. What did that change about all the, the, the foundational presuppositions we've gone through up to this point? Um, it doesn't change a thing. If, if every law went the way we wanted it to, it doesn't change a thing in terms of people's hearts. And therein lies the problem, because we cannot legislate this issue away, cannot in fact, I'm kind of to the point this is just a personal comment I'm kind of to the point i'm I'm kind of done with the legislative discussion here. I'm not saying that I don't hope court cases and laws go the way I would like to see them go i just I just don't know that it even matters anymore personally, just kind of where I'm at here because it it's not going to change all the the other components for me or for the other side, that I'm still going to believe the things I believe, and they're going to believe the things they believe, but I'm simply saying here now, legislation and, and cultural change isn't going to work because it will not address the deeper issues of the heart. It may simply try to put, you know, a band-aid over all the fruit, cover it up or pluck it off so nobody can see it, but it's all still growing, and it's all still there. Nothing's changed, and so we'd say the, what well, seems like a detrite Comment, but it's not that the gospel is the only answer not just for homosexuals but for all of us and all of our sinfulness sexual or otherwise the gospel is the only answer because we all need to see Jesus as being the only authority in life the only source of truth that's why that conversation has to go to authority because there's nowhere else to start God is real God has spoken, God has revealed himself in his word and in his son. And you as an image bearer have fallen short of his standard, as have I. And the only solution, the only answer is to come in humility, faith and repentance to Christ and depend on his righteousness. Otherwise, there's no hope. This is the only thing that that gives an answer to any of these issues in people's hearts. We need to see Jesus as being better than all of these things, all sins, all sexual sin, and we need to see Jesus as being better than homosexuality. That's that's the issue, just like it would be for anything. We would be satisfied in him. And so our failures in these areas are not not so much failures in practice as they are failures in belief. We don't believe in the end that that Jesus is really better than fill in the blank. He's not better than homosexuality. And so homosexuality provides more joy, fulfillment, and happiness. Therefore, I pursue that. The gospel needs to come to bear there. But just like it needs to come to bear if you believe that that things will provide you happiness, joy, or satisfaction in life. You're struggling with contentment. You need to see Jesus as being better than all those things. You're struggling in your marriage, and you want relational unity, but there's something in the middle. It's, it, the, the answer is not simply in removing the point of conflict. The answer is that both of you begin to see Jesus as being better than whatever that thing is. Is that the source of conflict? It doesn't matter what we talk about, the homosexuality issue or otherwise. It's always going to come to back to us seeing that God really is good. And that Jesus really is enough in all of these things. And so, stop listening to Russ Limbaugh. Okay, here's my pastoral comment to you. I don't know if he even talks about this. I haven't listened to him in a long time. Stop stop reading Fox News about it. It's just, the answers aren't there. It might get you all worked up and and hot and bothered. And I'm going to go fight and call my congressman or something. Yeah, okay. (laughs) <laughs> but, but, but when you're talking to your coworker, you're not having a political conversation. You shouldn't be. He doesn't need to accept your political viewpoint. Your relative or your neighbor doesn't need to come to see culture in the same way you do. It's not about culture. It's not about politics. They need to come to see Jesus in the same way you do. And that's something only God can do as he opens the eyes through the power of the gospel. And so you proclaim. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom. Why? So that we can present everyone perfect in Christ Jesus. That's, that's the mission. Day in, day out, every subject, every topic, every person, that's it. Never changes. That's pretty easy. you got an easy job, really, if you think about it that way. Because then you don't have to be an expert at every conversation you have well, I've never really thought about the implications of this on this, da 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 It's Jesus. <laughs> you proclaim him, and that's all there is. Any questions on that? Yes. You just came in here, so you can't ask a question. <laughs> You're trying to derail me. Chris has already been a part of a little mini-conversation that occurred about this point, so he's just trying to bring up uh, that, I think. Um, I would say, well, no, it's not an offline conversation. I'm just trying to think if I'm opening a can of worms by going here. Um, He's asking what what this conversation has to do then perhaps with freedom. Political freedom, I assume you're referring to. Yeah, based on our context. Yeah. Here's here's what I would say, and this is a, a personal, okay, since you asked a personal question on a topic that's non-biblical, I'm going to give you a personal response, okay? I, I I do not see how this topic does not eventually come to a crossroads between religious liberty and civil rights now. And what's going to trump what? And I'm pretty sure. I feel. I feel pretty confident. In the civil rights are going. The concept of civil rights in this is you're going to trump religious liberty, and what that means for us practically in the long run. I don't know. Um, I have fears about that. But I mean, their fears only in the loosest of sense. Because you know, let's just play it out. Let's just pretend that for a moment. And this was kind of the the. I think if this is where you were trying to get me to go, I'm going to go there now. Um, in the conversation that Chris and Jordan and I had about this the other day, we were trying to play out, like, what's the worst possible scenario for the church in all these topics? Worst possible scenario that I can envision is that the government were to come along and, and trump religious freedom and say your church has to accept this. Which, understand, as soon as that door is open, that there's no stopping that either, Okay. And then if you have to accept this, you also have to accept that. And it would would be a domino effect of epic proportions. Um, So the worst-case scenario is Cornerstone ceases to exist as an entity, recognized, organized, um, and public. The church met for hundreds of years in very informal, unorganized, in the sense of like a professional or, you know, corporate organization kind of uh, sense there and flourished. We don't cease to be the church if the name Cornerstone gets taken down off this building. And so even if if our freedoms were restricted and the government became very different than it is today and how it treats us, it doesn't really change who we are and it doesn't change our mission. This might look a whole lot different. But that's okay, right? Because it was never about drywall and lights and a name. It was always about spreading the name of Jesus everywhere we go and being missionaries, right? So worst case scenario is I have to go get a job. <laughs> so does Jordan now too. Uh, so this worst case. Scenario. Yeah, <laughs> for me, I like working one day a week now. It's good. It'd be hard to switch back uh oh I'm not going back <laughs> not going back I could do something else I don't know what I'm like what would I ever do if I didn't do this like so uh, huh you drive a tractor yeah I can go uh, be a model for John Deere now um Michaels yeah I got the Michaels option now professional racquetball there we go uh I don't think I'd do very well with that um yeah, I, I I think that's probably the worst that happens to our freedom. I mean, we we've lived in an, an um, maybe a, a stupor of the American dream for so long that as it uh, begins to clear, we um, I think we as Christians are going to probably have a lot of interesting issues to think through and discuss and respond to in the days ahead. And our children are going to have many more. That's that's mine and Jamie's number one conversation. I'm like, Nathaniel and Hannah are going to grow up in a very, very different world than I did. I mean, we're living through a revolution, but but it's not the last revolution coming. I I just, I, I, again, I'm not trying to be the guy who's fallen guy. I'm just saying, you just can't tell me that if you believe the things we've talked about tonight in any form, that the conversation stops where it is today. It's going to continue. Yes, Mike. Well, first of all, let me just clarify, and I'm not, I don't know that you were saying this, but just in case anyone thinks this, that the goal, the goal is not to talk them out of homosexuality or same-sex marriage, okay? So th- that's not the conversation, and the way you speak to them is the way you would speak to your heterosexual, unbelieving neighbors on the other side. I mean, what's, what's the difference between the homosexual neighbors on this side and the heterosexual neighbors on this side? Both are unbelievers, the the, the the same need exists in both homes. Both of them need Christ. Both of them need the gospel. And the conversations we have with them are always coming back to the same points, regardless of, of who they think they're married to or, or what their preferences are in, in terms of sexual choices. So in that sense, your conversation is no different than any conversation you've ever had with any unbelievers or sharing Christ with them. Now, as they bring up these topics, because you, you were, you brought uh, or, or referenced something there that's very important, and something I haven't even addressed in this, and, and I don't know um, that it reaches the level of presupposition, but it probably does. It's a good point. Um, sorry, I'm processing as I'm talking. Um, the issue of same-sex marriage, I don't know if it's really even just political. I think it's identity. It's a source of identity for many of these people. Now, I can't say that across the board. But see, if it's a source of identity, then so is the the person who finds all of their worth in their car. I mean, it, it, there's an identity issue going on there. Or the person who finds all their worth in their children. I mean, there's there's an identity. I mean, and what's the what's the response to any identity question? Well, your identity is found in Jesus, or should be. You're an image bearer of God. He's made you to look like Him, be like Him, and bring glory to Him. But you're fallen, and the only answer is Christ. And so that's the identity conversation in a nutshell. How it's expressed, though, of course, would be different depending on the specifics of the situation. Does that help at all? Okay. Daniel. Yeah, again, I mean, it would depend probably on the circumstances and situation. I um I should probably clarify one one thing, you know, I am focusing tonight at this presuppositional level of emphasizing that that God has defined many things as sexual immorality, homosexuality being one of them, but as we deal with other people, then we're dealing with other expressions of it, okay? Um there is no question though that there are different outcomes and um circumstances that come to bear on this one that don't come to bear on others. For example, there, you know, in that scenario, so if you've got an unbelieving heterosexual couple living together and they come to faith in Christ, well then the the pastoral response is will get married. <laughs> we'll perform the wedding. Let's make, you know, let's let's treat your bond now as a covenant between the two of you and God. That's not the same conversation we have at the end with the homosexual couple when we say, go your separate ways and never come back together. There are different outcomes, and, and and even in Scripture, is clear uh, that different sexual sins are even treated differently in terms of response. And so, as far as the conversation goes, again, the conversation always comes back to the gospel. The conversation may or may not come directly to their specific sins, uh, depending on circumstances that, again, would be too difficult to try to give, like, carte blanche statements to. But the gospel is always the, the conversation, however— the end is going to be very different. That, and that is an a point that can't be lost. It would be the same, you know, for other sins, sexual sins as well. I mean, incest, you wouldn't say, you know, stay together. Polygamy, you wouldn't say, you wouldn't think. I don't know. That would be a hard one. We'd stay together. you know, Children involved. See, the more complex we make these topics, the harder they are to respond to. But I know that there's no marriage there and that their actions are wrong and that they go apart and we'll sort through the other stuff <laughs> in time. <laughs> All right. Yeah. But it's, it's like the It's like growing up in the South, everybody goes to church and everybody loves Jesus. And I, I, I found it to be a breath of fresh air to live in Chicago for a little bit, because so there people are like, "True Jesus." All right, let's talk. <laughs> you got a really easy conversation now at this point, um, versus where your neighbor is like the deacon of the church down the road, and it's still more saved than the rock in your front yard. You know, it's it's. Yeah, I. In that sense, you're right. The, the 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 saying from church history is, "The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church." Persecution has always led to growth, and purity, and and progress in the gospel. Um, so it'd be a an, an interesting road, but it would be a fruitful one. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there is no doubt that this topic is the. Now um, I forgot the term, phrase I've been using for it. It's the um, cause du jour, or whatever. I forgot the right now of our culture and, and m- businesses. I mean, we were just talking on Thursday night, and he was saying how uh, what month is it? It's LBG. June is LBGT month for uh, Morgan Stanley. So every morning he comes in, it's process. It's a screensaver. Like that's that's their issue. That's what they want to push, and churches have gotten on board with that, and political parties, etc. Um, for, for Christians or people who profess Christianity, again, these presuppositions are areas to investigate, address, and respond to. Why, why are they for this? Most likely, I would assume that functionally, they don't believe God is clear or authoritative. And so, because they don't believe God is clear or authoritative, they've made decisions on their own, apart from any objective morality. They're a functioning atheist at that moment, even though they may profess belief in God. Um, and, and I mean, that's just a brief, quick example. But but you're, you're trying to peel back the layers of the onion to understand where where are we starting the conversation at that point? I mean, it it, it goes far back probably into their very understanding of who God is. And that's the issue, And again, not just with homosexuality, but with anyone who professes faith in Christ and yet lives as an unbeliever. Um, what are they really believing? What is the nature of true saving faith? And again, this is why I've said so many times on Sundays, don't talk to people about faith and don't talk to people about God. Just, let's like make a decision. We never again are going to talk to people about faith or God. I don't know what either of those words mean in conversations with 90% of people. You want to talk to them about something important? Talk to them about Jesus. About what the scriptures say about Jesus. That'll probably cut you off of your conversation quicker. And you will save you some time then, right? You'll So you'll be able to move on to the next person um, and get on with it. But I mean, that—that's what are they really functioning at in the presuppositional level? Because um, what they're saying and what they're believing or, or affirming or promoting or not meshing. So we've got a presuppositional problem somewhere. All right, Carly's going to be the last one because I got one thing I want to do at the end here. No, you're good. <laughs> Right. It's an authority issue. I Always going to come back to this. It's an authority issue. Where's the authority? Um, just a few quick points here at the end. Just some how do we live today? Some just again. I don't know that this has been helpful. I I, I tried to think about it again at this deeper level and just say what's in the heart, what's in the roots of these conversations that people are having, and and just wanted to address that. But I did want to leave us with a few practical comments. Number one, one way we can live today. We can stop treating sin as a buffet and just reject all of it, okay? Not just taking the ones we are okay with and rejecting the ones that we find disgusting. Because if you go back now to this passage, read it again with a little different eyes, okay? Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. So the sexually immoral don't inherit the kingdom of God. And idolaters don't inherit the kingdom of God. And adulterers and men who practice homosexuality, and so far we're like, okay, good, (laughs) woo. No idols in my house, and I'm not sleeping with anyone I shouldn't. Praise the Lord. Nor thieves. And you know how many movies or CDs do you have pirated in your house right now? You're a thief. You have any pirated software, movies, music? You're not going to hear it, the kingdom of God. You know, like that's that should scare you. I'm not. I'm not saying you're going to hell just because you pirated something out. My point is that, we, we, (laughs) who said, (laughs) shoo? You do need to get rid of it, though, tonight. I'm not joking. It's sin. You stole. Throw it away. Stealing is wrong. Greedy. Many of us in this room are greedy. We may not have a lot, but we want a lot can't just pass over greed and focus on homosexuality it's not a buffet i don't get to pick and choose and i know we're all inconsistent me being the first and worst of everyone okay we're all inconsistent on this point but the goal or one of our goals should be in terms of how we go out and live from some of these conversations tonight is that we stop treating sin as a buffet bar and we just we reject all of it regardless of its point okay so drunkards if you're getting drunk you're in the list. Reviler, swindler, it's not, you, you see my point, you can't just pick on this one and be all up in arms and holier than thou on, that's why we're hypocrites, that's why people around us see us as hypocrites, they're, they are completely right. When they know the, the Christians around them and they see all the things they're doing on the side, we don't have a voice, we shouldn't have a voice. Thankfully it's not about our voice, it's about the truth of God's word, and so again it comes back to authority, so that's just one Comment I would make. Uh, number two is something to do practically from this: is that we need to start praying for courage and faithfulness to Christ, like hard. Pray for ourselves that we will be courageous to stand up for truth. Pray for one another that we be courageous to stand up for truth as a church, as as a body of in, in Christ, and that we'll be faithful to Him. Because Peter's not the only one who denies Him. We're going to see his denial eventually, but he's not the only one. All of us have done it so this is something that is particularly if 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 things continue to progress downward that is going to have to become a more regular prayer that we pray god help us to be courageous to stand up for what we believe what you have said and help us to be faithful to proclaim it no matter what the consequences are so i would pray for that starting today and then number 3 i just wrote down that we show love and we speak gospel Every one around us, no matter what the sin issue is, okay? So it's, it's not that we're going out like trying to find all the gay people we know. <laughs> Those are the people we need to see get saved. No, it's, it's every unbeliever you know. You show love and you speak gospel. It's not just one and not just the other. You show love and you speak gospel. Or if you don't want to do it that way, you can speak gospel and show love. Either way, okay, I'm good with it. But they have to go together, or else you're, you're, you're not doing what you need to be doing as someone who is an ambassador for Christ, proclaiming a message of reconciliation. So this is what we do. We, we, we show love and we speak gospel to everyone. And who knows what God does with those things? This is Jesus' point in Nicodemus, right? The, spirit bl- or the wind blows where it will. You, you can't see where it's coming from or where it's going, but you know what's going on, right? And so it is with the Spirit. We don't know what actions, what words the Spirit uses in the lives of the people around us. But we know he uses his truth. And that as Carly said, the gospel is powerful. The power of God to salvation. That the scriptures are able to divide the heart and to reveal things about people that they would never would have seen themselves. And so I don't know how that works. and. You may live your entire life and see nothing yourself. <laughs> you never know what the Spirit uses. And so we show love and we speak gospel to everyone around us. And, and we leave it to the Spirit to do His part. Okay, from there, That's all I have for you tonight. Thank you for coming. It's 6.58, so we're going to pray and we need to be done so that parents, particularly those of you with kids over in the junior-senior-high group, can go get them. Um, but then... All of you can stay around as long as you want because Jordan's closing. So, uh, sorry. Um, but thank you for coming, and, and if you have some questions, maybe we can talk even a little afterwards, but um, let's pray. Jesus, this topic is is far bigger than any of us in here it can really get our minds around. But I pray, Lord, that tonight we have at least in some way and some, to some extent been able to peel back the layers of the onion to understand the, the root of the matter and the heart issues that are really going on here. Things that people believe but it, that aren't true. And so, Lord, I pray that as we go forward from tonight, whether it's interacting with, with the issue of homosexuality or anything else, that you will you will help us to respond in love and in truth. That we will be courageous that we will be faithful again not just on this one topic but in all matters lord i pray that you forgive all of us in here for our hypocrisy on this subject i pray lord that even maybe through tonight you will work in in all of our hearts to stop treating sin as a buffet that we pick and choose what we like and reject the ones we don't and and then judge others based on that. Lord, convict us, reveal areas that we need to change, and help us to live differently. That as people who name your name, we will actually live as you lived. We'll speak as you speak. We'll love as you loved. Lord, I I just pray that you will make us into your image. And So thank you for tonight and for your word. And uh, we commend it now to you in Jesus' name.